Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, really a pleasure to have all of you here, uh, hopefully enjoying a, a cup of coffee and uh, eager to learn what you're going to learn today, which is going to be really fantastic uh, from Dr. Crumbleholm. Uh, before I ask Dr. Fink to uh, introduce the Grand Rounds and Dr. Crumbleholm, I just want to, uh, again, extend uh, uh, our sincere uh, condolences to our team members who have relatives in Turkey and in Syria. Uh, this has been an absolutely devastating event uh, worldwide, uh, and I know uh, some of you are from, from Turkey and from Syria, and some of you have team members, uh, have family members that have been really affected by this. I, I also know of people who've lost relatives in, in Turkey that are associated with our institution. Uh, so to all of you, uh, you know, we, we stand with you. Uh, we'll be sending out some information of how uh, you can contribute uh, through the relief organizations that are valid uh, so that you, you can uh, feel at least you're, you're doing something for, for this population, which is suffering so much, uh, many, many kids as well. Um, now let's turn that a little bit into a positive thing. And today is uh, Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's to all of you, uh, to the people here in the, in the auditorium. Think happy Valentine's to you, and she's appropriately wearing red today, you'll see. Uh, the colors of the roses that I enjoy so much. Uh, next Friday, just the last thing is uh, we have uh, Dr. John Shriver, though this Friday actually will be back for, for Ask the Experts. It's been a while, so it'll be uh, please tune in, and hopefully we can ask John to declare whether the pandemic has actually officially ended. Not sure it has, but maybe. Uh, so I'm going to ask Dr. Fink, our outstanding Surgeon-in-Chief, to introduce the Grand Rounds. Chris? Thank you so much, Juan. I, too, would like to echo the condolences to the families and uh, people of Syria and Turkey. Um, in addition, I'd also like to wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day. In the spirit of kindness, it would be great today to take a moment and tell people that you love what you love about them or do a, do a brief moment of kindness. With that said, I have the distinct honor of introducing my partner, Dr. Kremelholm. Um, he is a world-renowned pediatric surgeon, and uh, it was a coup for us to be able to recruit him here. He did his training um, in medical school at Tufts. He trained for surgical residency at University of California in San Francisco, uh, did his pediatric surgery at the floating, and did his fetal uh, surgery uh, fellowship at University of California in San Francisco. But what's most impressive is his elusive career in building fetal programs, of which we are going to benefit from that right now. And he's going to talk to us about fetal surgery, past, present, and future. Dr. Crumholm. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you, Dr. Salazar. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak today, especially with us opening a new fetal care center. My intention was to try to give folks an overview of where this field has started, how it has evolved, and where it's likely to head in the future. So many of you may remember uh, Richard Feynman. He was a Nobel laureate who taught for most of his career at Caltech. And he once made the observation that for a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled. And I think this is very apropos of fetal surgery around which there has been a lot of hype. Uh, some of it 
justifiable, much of it not. And what I hope to do is by reviewing various aspects of fetal surgery that has evolved over the last 40 years to give you some sense of perspective on this field, what is possible, what is not, where the field is likely headed, where we've made significant advances and where we still struggle. So we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for the phenomenal progress that's been made in every aspect of prenatal diagnosis. Um, not just imaging, our, our ultrasound capabilities are far advanced over the last 20 years. Uh, and with the addition of fetal MRI, we have really uh, expanded the scope of what we can determine about a fetal condition. <clears throat> and as of the result of the Human Genome Project, there's virtually no condition that we can't diagnose in the first trimester of pregnancy that we could diagnose in the newborn nursery. And so we've essentially moved the goalposts. And if a fetus can uh, be diagnosed with a condition, it becomes a patient. And it is has the potential for us to intervene and change the natural history of that condition and alter the outcome. Now, why does prenatal diagnosis and treatment matter? Uh, because of the phenomenal advances that our neonatologists have made in treating premature babies, structural anomalies are now the leading cause of perinatal mortality in NICUs in the United States. And this really represents a continuum of care. Uh, the fetus becomes a patient at diagnosis, and from a pediatric perspective, it's really just an extension of newborn care or what my colleague Mary Dalton likes to refer to as prenatal pediatrics. From the obstetrical perspective, it really is the logical extension of their ability to make a diagnosis. But what is abundantly clear is that no single discipline has all the skill, knowledge, and requisite expertise to treat this mother-baby dyad. And it really highlights the importance of integrated team counseling. Now, the beginning of fetal surgery had its origins in the early 1960s, both in New York and Puerto Rico, where open fetal surgery was done for exchange transfusions for the treatment of RH isoimmunization. Now, those were experiments that did not go well, and fetal surgery languished on a shelf for another 20 years. But this operation in 1981 at UCSF by Mike Harrison really was the dawn of a new era. Uh, this was a case report of a baby with bladder outlet obstruction who underwent open fetal surgery for bilateral uh, ureterostomies. It was technically successful. The amniotic fluid was restored. However, when the baby was born, the lungs were still hypoplastic and the baby died of pulmonary death. But despite this poor outcome, I think the imagination of the editors at the time were excited about this, and it was actually published. And being a young medical student at the time, it certainly fired my imagination and was the reason I trained at UCSF. Now, bladder outlet obstruction, ironically, the very first condition that was treated using fetal surgery still is something that defies our best efforts. Fortunately, very quickly after Dr. Harrison reported that open fetal surgery, a less invasive ultrasound-guided vesicoamniotic shunt approach was developed. And this is a fetoscopic view of a shunt being placed in a bladder of a fetus with bladder outlet obstruction. Here you see the vesicoamniotic shunt being deployed. 
Obviously, this is much easier to do than open fetal surgery, just requires an ultrasound and the, and the catheter, but it's less effective. Uh, the bladder is abnormal, and it does restore amniotic fluid and allow the lungs to grow, but did not address the primary underlying problem. It's never been studied in a randomized clinical trial, and there was a lack of appreciation of complications and long-term sequelae. And it does not eliminate the high pressure that's in the bladder because of the obstruction. And the sad truth is that 50% of those who are successfully treated have chronic renal failure and have severely compromised growth as a result. And they have severe bladder dysfunction, which makes them poor candidates for kidney transplant, ultimately. And part of the problem is the nature of these shunts themselves. They're about 12 centimeters in length, a millimeter in diameter. And the bladder has to generate significant pressure to force urine through them. And that pressure is very often refluxed up to the kidneys, exposing the developing kidney to these high pressures, causing progressive dysplasia. And this is a, a reason why we have really failed to really correct with just using shunts. When we looked at our experience over a four-year period when I was in Cincinnati with 84 cases of bladder outlet obstruction, you can see because of the counseling, 11 elected not to go forward, five elected just comfort care. And despite treatment, whether it was shunting, fetoscopy, or open fetal surgery, we could get uh, babies to survive to delivery if we could restore amniotic fluid. Some of them would survive even if they did not have uh, restoration of fluid with an overall survival of 68% to birth. And most of those that we lost were due to pulmonary hypoplasia. But most strikingly is that only half of those babies actually went home and they had renal insufficiency or frank renal failure and severe bladder dysfunction. So clearly an unsolved problem. Now we have geared towards trying to attack the fundamental underlying problem, which are the posterior urethral valves. And the scopes that we've had available to us up until recently are the stored semi-rigid fetoscope, which can only turn so far. And as the fetus matures, the angulation at the uh, posterior urethra and the bladder becomes more acute. And we can't visualize the posterior urethral valves. But more recently, we now have flexible scopes, those made by Stortz and Dornier, where literally 180 degree uh, turn is possible and about 120 is possible with um, a laser fiber in line. And this is made treating posterior urethral valves at any gestational age, not just before 20 weeks uh, possible. And as you see here, this is a fetoscopic laser procedure being performed uh, at uh, about 20 weeks gestation. We're in the bladder. You're looking at the bladder outlet. And off to your right, coming into view, will be the right ureteral orifice right there. And uh, there's the left ureteral orifice right here. So we're going to go into the bladder outlet and visualize the posterior urethral valves in an anti-grade fashion and then use a 600 micron endostat to laser perforate the posterior urethral valves. And essentially, we, we create Swiss cheese of the posterior urethral valves that opens up uh, the posterior urethra and allows urine to drain uh, normally. 
And so we create a Swiss cheese that eventually these little 600 micron holes can be uh, communicated uh, to provide uh, a, a channel for uh, the baby to uh, drain your. And at the end, we put a shunt in just to have a belt and suspenders approach. You can see the shunt within the bladder here, and then you'll see a pigtail on the outside as we withdraw the fetoscope right there. The sad truth is that for every patient that we are referred that, that we can treat in that way, there are nine babies who are already have fetal renal failure. They have oligohydramnios or anhydramnios. They have evidence of renal dysplasia, either by ultrasound and or MRI, very abnormal fetal urine electrolytes. And if we tap their bladder, they don't make any urine to restore the bladder distension. And so we have developed a program to treat these babies by serial amnio infusions, either by needle or by amnioport. About 15 years ago, I developed the amnioport so that we could do this easily on an outpatient basis basically taking a, a standard metaport, creating, <coughs> excuse me, creating a technique <clears throat> whereby we would place the catheter into the amniotic cavity, tunnel it through the wall of the uterus and bring it out on mom's chest wall so that she could come into the clinic and intermittently have uh, infusions of sterile IV fluid uh, two to three times uh, a, a week. The amnioport is something that makes it easier to have this done. You don't have to have, be poked with a needle and perforate the amnion two to three times a week for the rest of the pregnancy. And we've done this. We reported it first in 2017, eight cases, uh, most of bladder outlet obstruction due to posterior valves, two cases of bilateral renal agenesis. <clears throat> and of those who had successful amnio infusion, <clears throat> excuse me, without um, rupture of membranes, had excellent pulmonary function. Uh, two died because of an unrecognized laryngeal web and early PPROM. Um, and three have already undergone uh, kidney transplantation. The others are on dialysis. Now, over the last four years, we've expanded this fetal renal failure program. And during that four-year period, we have 51 patients who were referred uh, for fetal renal failure. Now, six proved to have other diagnoses, unrecognized PPROM, two with profound IUGR, and two had posterior valves whose renal function turned out to be um, preserved, but 45 were available for our amnioinfusion protocol. The most common, bladder outlet obstruction, but also multicystic dysplastic kidneys and bilateral renal agenesis. And... We were gratified that after extensive counseling, not just by the fetal surgeons, but neonatologists, uh, pediatric nephrologists, pediatric urologists, uh, and a psych evaluation, 17 elected not to go forward. Of those, six were lost to follow up. Those who delivered with us had comfort care and all died pulmonary deaths. And we presume the same of those who, who were lost to follow up. That left 26 who entered the AI protocol and two of these actually spontaneously improved during uh, the course of treatment very early on. So that left 24. 24 of the 24 uh, survived to delivery at an average gestational age of 34 weeks. Now, the survival to 30 days, the neonatal period with successful peritoneal dialysis was 16 or 80%. 
and you can see the mean weight, and, and it ranged quite significantly. There were premature deaths, and almost all of these were due to premature rupture of membranes and the combination of prematurity and pulmonary hypoplasia. And there were several near-term deaths, two were genetic, one syndromic, and one uh, a duplication. And an unfortunate uh, autosomal recessive uh, polycystic kidney disease in which the surgeon present at the time refused to resect the kidneys and died of uh, pulmonary insufficiency as a result of the mass effect of these enormous kidneys. There were late deaths as well, and it's important to recognize how complicated these babies can be. Uh, one developed repeated peritonitis, re resulting in a lack of a dialyzable membrane. Um, one developed hemorrhagic peritonitis, secondary to infection, and one had massive pulmonary hemorrhage at six weeks of age. The overall survival to a minimum of six months, which was our outcome uh, primary endpoint, end was 58.3%. Now, remember, Ordinarily, none of these babies would have survived. And CVVH was needed in 35.7% of those. Two have already gone on to transplant, and the other 12 are awaiting transplant. Now, we're developing this program here at Connecticut Children's with the help of Shereen Mason. Um, and basically, the assessment uses ultrasound, fetal MRI, and fetal echocardiography because there are specific structural changes in the heart in these fetal renal failure patients. They're assessed by a residual function, not only on the appearance of the kidneys, but whether or not they can make urine after a bladder tap. Uh, and then they're assessed as to whether they're a candidate for the amnio infusion protocol, and they can elect either needle-based or amnioport insertion. The baby has to reach a minimum weight of 1,500 grams for peritoneal dialysis catheter placement. And I'm happy to say that we're getting a carpe diem system here which is designed for neonatal uh, CVVH and dialysis, which we use as a backup. Now, that's one area that we've uh, struggled to make progress. I think another example where we actually have made significant progress is in CPAMs, or congenital pulmonary airway malformations, what used to be called CCAMs. Um, and what we've been able to do is not only define the natural history, but more appropriately evaluate the role of shunts, open fetal surgery, medically treating these conditions with uh, betamethasone, and the use of ultrasound-guided intravascular laser and fetal thoracoscopy to improve the outcomes. Perhaps one of the most important things was the development of the CAM volume ratio, which was done in collaboration with Bev Coleman at Penn, where we uh, use... <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> where we use the um, three-dimensional measurements of the CPAM using <clears throat> the volume of ellipse uh, to calculate the mass and normalize that to the head circumference. This allowed us to define the natural history because oftentimes these are very large, scary-looking masses but actually can have a very good outcome. And what we observed was that these lesions can grow almost exponentially between 20 and 26 weeks gestation. They tend to plateau, and then the baby grows around them. And this really changes our impression of, of what kind of trouble the baby is in. And we become much more tolerant of high drops in these cases if we know that they're about to reach the plateau phase and the baby will grow around the lesion. Now, 
One of the things that was serendipitously observed by Haman Lee at UCSF was that if you give steroids, it seems to induce a plateau in the growth of these CPAMs. And you can see that here on your left. This is the presentation with this massive left upper lobe CPAM. There's high drops as evidenced by ascites and skin and scalp edema. And then <clears throat> eight weeks following a single course of beta-methasone, just like we would do for immaturity, we see that this lesion has regressed in size. It's confined to the left upper lobe. There's no longer any mediastinal shift, and the high drops has completely resolved. Now, we don't recommend steroids for low-risk CPAMs with a cambium ratio less than 1.6. They already have an excellent outcome. But high-risk CCAMs with a, a cambium ratio greater than 1.6 have a lower survival, um, and in the non-hydropic ones, when they're treated with steroids, have 100% survival. So clearly an argument can be made for these high-risk CCAMs. Uh, now, what about hydropic uh, treated with steroids? 45% um, survival as opposed to almost 89% survival if we see the high drops resolve. If the high drops doesn't resolve, we know that that's uh, an indication for more invasive therapy. Now, our definition of invasive therapy is involved. We almost never do open fetal surgery for these conditions any longer, but we can treat the arterial perfusion of these lesions. So here's an example of a right bronchopulmonary sequestration versus a hybrid CPAM with early high drops. And you can see this very large mass and there's a systemic flow void coming off the aorta going directly to this mass. And what we were able to do is treat this hydropic baby, not with open fetal surgery, but with an ultrasound-guided intravascular laser photocoagulation of the feeding vessel. And so you can see on this brief ultrasound that here's that vessel coming off the aorta. And we're going to place a uh, ultrasound under a, a needle under ultrasound guidance right into the vessel within the mass. And we can turn the uh, laser on. Here you can see the, the needle coming in. And a 600 micron uh, laser fiber is placed through the needle and just exposed at the tip. And we can photocoagulate that vessel. And this is color Doppler showing the ablation of that valve of that uh, vessel. You can see the heat signature here, and there's no longer any perfusion from that systemic vessel. So in this baby, which we treated uh, at I believe 23 weeks, there was complete regression of the high drops. Uh, the CPAM regressed in size, and the baby delivered at 38 weeks gestation had an excellent outcome. Now, sometimes these CPAMs are very large, but they're cystic. They're not solid like the ones I just showed you. Uh, and usually, we would treat these by shunts. But oftentimes, these cysts do not communicate. And there's a limit to how much regression in the size of these very large lesions you can get just with a shunt placement. And so we've uh, been using fetal thoracoscopy. So we put a fetoscope in, as you see here, and under ultrasound guidance and fetoscopically select a point on the fetal chest. And then we pop into not only the fetal chest, but into the CPAM itself. 
So here we are popping into the chest. There's the dominant cyst right there. And then we can look around and see if we need to fenestrate. So this is within the CPAM. And we can use a laser fiber to help communicate all of these cysts. So at the end, we can leave a, a um, shunt behind and get a 70% reduction uh, in the volume of this mass by communicating all the cysts within the CPAM. Now, some of them do communicate like this one here. And you can see these small vessels. So we use the laser fiber to photocoagulate those vessels before we fenestrate them. Now, we've made tremendous progress uh, with the treatment of CPAMs, but probably one of the best stories in fetal surgery is how much progress has been made in congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And I think it's safe to say that we are doing better with congenital diaphragmatic hernia than we've ever done before, largely because of the changes that we've made postnatally, not because of fetal surgery. There certainly is a small subset of patients that still can do better with fetal surgery, but our overall management of this condition has improved dramatically over the last 20 years. Now, this is data from two different institutions, uh, initially at uh, Cincinnati Children's before I joined them, and then afterward, and then Children's Colorado. In yellow, you see the survival, and in blue, the use of ECMO. Now, this data here is at Cincinnati Children's prior to the development of the CDH team. Basically, this was the idea that with large staffs on both neonatology and surgery, it may go two years before any individual will take care of a diaphragmatic hernia. This idea was concentrating the experience with a small number, two neonatologists, two surgeons, to care for these babies. And what was seen was an immediate increase in the survival and a decrease in the need for ECMO support. The fetal uh, care center was developed at uh, Cincinnati in 2003, and the main impact that that had, we went from seeing about six diaphragms a year to 25 diaphragms a year, and we saw an even greater increase in survival and a further decrease in the uh, need for ECMO. And this translated directly to Children's Colorado with a great survival, 92%, and only 18% incidence of the need for ECMO. And just to put it in context, this light blue bar is the Children's Hospital Neonatal Database. That was the average survival of all the participants in the neonatal database. And not only did the survival improve, but this was despite an increase in the number of cases with liver herniation and the requirement for patch uh, placement for repair, both markers of severity. Now, it has been known by physiologists literally for decades that if you occlude the fetal trachea, lung secretions will accumulate, the intratracheal pressure rises, and it accelerates lung growth. Jay Wilson at uh, Boston Children's was the first to apply this in a model, cheap model, of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and this was rapidly replicated around the world. And back in the 90s, uh, we did a small series of 15 patients that we did open fetal surgery to do tracheal occlusion. Here on the left, uh, we see the dissected out uh, fetal trachea so we could preserve the recurrent laryngeal nerves. You notice the baby is still in the uterus. We've just taken out the right and left arms uh, to do the neck dissection. And then we place big clips across the trachea to completely occlude it. 
And what we see in a matter of just four weeks is that here's the pre-op with the, the heart squished against the right chest wall, stomach herniation, liver herniation. Hard to see any lung at all. But four weeks later, a large right and left lung, which are easier to see on sagittal views. So it can definitely increase the size of these lungs. They're not necessarily normal lungs, but they are much larger and they're more developed. Now, Mike Harrison did an NA-sponsored trial of tracheal occlusion, and they allowed him to shift from a fetoscopic uh, using five different ports to a balloon technique that was first developed uh, by Jan Depressed in Belgium. And basically using a single port, the balloon can be deployed after going through the vocal cords to occlude the trachea. And this prospective randomized trial did not show any benefit. And part of the reason was that they use very favorable uh, LHRs. So uh, LHRs of greater than one were associated with uh, almost 100% survival at the time in Cincinnati. Um, And these survivals were exactly the same as they had postnatally. And so in the United States, this went on the shelf. But fortunately, Jan Depressed and the Eurofetus group in Europe persisted with this, but they isolated it to the most severely affected uh, babies. And they, in the 210 cases, were able to document a 49% survival, but with conventional uh, postnatal therapy, only 20% survival. And this was the impetus for the total trial or tracheal occlusion uh, to accelerate lung growth. The problem at the time was that their equivalent of the IRB said you have to offer it clinically. It would be unethical to only offer this through a randomized trial. And so they had problems um, doing this uh, recruiting patients. So they recruited multiple centers here in the United States to help them. The SEVERE trial um, basically uh, enlisted centers from the North America to to help complete it. The SEVERE was those with less than a 25% observed to expected LHR, and the outcome was survival. And the moderate trial was 25 to 35, liver up or down, or 35 to 45 with liver up. And this schematic shows you the severe versus the moderate trial and the standard survival rate that existed prior to the total trial. And you can see, certainly in the severe, was looking at the worst end of the spectrum but this represents about 8 to 10% of all diaphragmatic hernias, whereas if you move it up to the moderate trial, it represents close to 50% of diaphragmatic hernias. Storch developed a specially designed fetoscope for this, and you can see for deployment of the balloon right here, which is 7 millimeters in diameter and 2 centimeters in length, uh, which allowed ease of placement using this special scope. And this is just uh, a baby undergoing uh, fetoscopic endoluminal tracheal occlusion, 28 weeks gestation. There's the carina, and here's the balloon being put into the trachea. And this is a detachable balloon that was designed for neurointerventional radiology to treat aneurysms in the brain. Um, 
the balloon is inflated and then gentle traction on uh, the catheter will pull the catheter off the balloon, leaving it behind. And there it is. So those are the vocal cords and there's the balloon left behind. So about a year ago, the severe trial was reported. Uh, FETO had a 40% survival and the expecting group only a 15% survival, which was highly significant. But it came at an expense, a much higher rate of PPROM um, and prematurity. 80% of those were uh, born uh, prior to 34 weeks gestation. And in the moderate trial, it also showed a benefit, 63% survival versus 50%, which approached but did not achieve significance, and this is likely due to being underpowered. Um, alive without oxygen at six months, which was the primary endpoint, was better with fetal than expectant, but PPROM was higher, as was prematurity. So certainly a mixed bag. Now, Today, we are still pursuing uh, tracheal occlusion, even though uh, the North American uh, Fetal Consortium recently presented our results at the SMFM meeting. And basically, we found no significant differences, but the outcomes were much better for both groups. And there is a subset within this category of diaphragms that does benefit. And part of the problem is identifying them prior to delivery and making our selection uh, criteria more refined. The FDA is in agreement with this, and so this is going to be moving forward. We're going to continue to offer fetal for the most severely affected cases. Now, one another area that we've made significant advances is in the use of the exit procedure, or ex-utero intrapartum treatment, which was initially designed to remove those surgical clips for tracheal occlusion. But we've now applied this to a whole range of indications from airway compromise from tumors like teratomas and lymphangiomas to profound micronathia or epignathus, another tumor. And sometimes you can have a mass so large it obstructs the thoracic inlet, causes SVC syndrome, or tumors that obstruct the interthoracic uh, airway and so require resection prior to the baby being born or exit to ECMO, either for cardiac reasons or severe diaphragmatic hernia or pacemaker in complete heart block, and even the separation of conjoined twins. Um, I was recently contacted by one of the first ones that was done for this indication. She's 23 and just graduating from college and is going to medical school. So here's an example of an indication for an exit procedure. Um, very, very large cervical teratoma completely obstructing the airway, but worse was like a cork in the bottle in the thoracic inlet causing um, SVC syndrome. And so if you went in through the neck, this baby would undoubtedly just bleed to death. And so what we did, it was something we refer to as a tri-exit or a transthoracic retrograde intubation exit. So we went in through the chest, and again, we're using ligature so that we won't even get skin bleeding. We do a median sternotomy to expose the trachea. And you'll see that as we uh, divide the trachea, there is so much uh, pleural fluid from the high drops in both lungs, the pleural was bulging. And because the baby is hyperextended, the carina is lifted up into the thoracic inlet. 
So here's the bulging uh, pleural spaces right there. We take out the thymus, and then we isolated the trachea. There's the thymus. We isolate the trachea. We've got a vessel loop around the carina. You can see how high the carina is. And then we make a tracheotomy and pass an endotube, uh, uh, endotracheal tube exchanger, and then pass the endotracheal tube over it, and you'll see the ET tube come into the operative field. And we can then repair the trachea with a little pericardial patch, and the baby now has a stable airway. And we thought we were home free. Um, we delivered the baby, and the baby was profoundly sick, had a massive coagulopathy, profound pulmonary hypertension. And one of the things that we did not recognize and went immediately back to the operating room to resect the mass was that these teratomas can cause a profound uh, coagulopathy. And the lungs being pulled up into the apices of the chest cause tremendous pulmonary hypertension, all of which resolved and this baby did beautifully thereafter. Probably one of the areas that we have made the most progress and is one of the most common indications uh, for fetal surgery is twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which is almost uniformly fatal if untreated. And now with the use of fetoscopic laser, 97% of pregnancies, one or both babies survive, and 83% of the time, both babies survive. And this is a complex topic that deserves its own grand rounds talk, but just to show you, this is the underlying problem, chorioangiopagus. So this is a, a, an artery coming from one baby, going to the cotyledon, and then a slightly higher oxygen tension in the vein, draining that cotyledon. Here's that same vessel after laser photocoagulation. And just a quick uh, video to highlight this. These are the vessels that are communicating on the surface of the placenta. And it's very important to map every single vascular connection uh, before we ever start lasering. So we have to define that. And then we can put the laser endostat in line, as you see here. Just getting some smudge off the laser fiber. And then we can map from the edge of the placenta you'll see these vascular connections come into view. And much like a video game, you point and photocoagulate these vessels, as you see here. And this can be done in about three minutes. But there is a spectrum of outcomes, and I've, I've shown this uh, uh, to put it in context. Um, one of the challenges, I think we have in fetal centers is not everybody is transparent about what their outcomes are. And there are reasons that the outcomes uh, in our experience are what they are. And it's the subject of a much larger talk, but it's got uh, more to do with pretreatment with nifedipine with the twin-twin cardiomyopathy, the mat mapping protocols, and the short duration of time in which uh, the babies are placed at risk during the laser procedure itself. The other most common area um, is the repair of my myelomeningocele, spina bifida. And um, I was initially at CHOP when the MOMS trial started, and this was an absolutely essential trial because parents were absolutely evangelical about the prospects of this operation, which were not justified. And it was difficult to get 
informed consent because patients walk through the door convinced that if they just have this uh, procedure, their children will walk and play and have an absolutely normal life. And it, the, the real answer was much more complicated than that. And the mom's trial was essential in teaching us this. Now, this is one of the first successful uh, repair in utero of spina bifida. Uh, this was the prenatal view on the left. And you can see the hindbrain herniation. And this is that same baby um, immediately postnatally. And you can see there's no longer hindbrain herniation. There's fluid around the cerebellum, a return of the fourth ventricle. Um, but there is still beaking of the tectum. Um, so the Chiari doesn't completely go away, but certainly the hindbrain herniation does. And this is basically the view of a myelosquesis. The first step is reflecting the fascial edges, which is covered by dura, and then that is closed over the placode, and then skin is closed over that, very much like the neurosurgeons do in the uh, newborn nursery. Now, the MOMS trial was stopped at 183 patients for efficacy, and the primary endpoint was death or VP shunt at one year of age, and then there were multiple secondary endpoints. And the primary thing was that it dramatically reduced by 50% the need for postnatal ventriculoperitoneal shunting. And we learned a lot more than that and appreciated that there were other things going on. Now, there were secondary outcomes that appeared better, uh, more than a neurologic level, more than two vertebral potties better was more common in the prenatal surgery. And walking with or without orthotics was more common with prenatal surgery. But as you all know, many of these children may be able to scoot around with or without orthotics when they're three, four, or five years of age. But it's a different story when they're 16, 17, and have an adult body habitus. The work of ambulation becomes too much, and many of these children end up in wheelchairs. So how durable uh, these outcomes are, we will have to wait and see. What was most striking was some of the complications that were not appreciated before the MOMS trial. 46% of patients delivered at or before 34 weeks gestation. And so there were all the issues of prematurity that go along with that gestational age at delivery. In addition, there were obstetrical complications that weren't generally appreciated. Um, most uh, specifically, the only 64% of the hysterotomies were actually intact by the time the baby delivered. It was either very thin or partially dehissed or completely dehissed. Now, we have completely changed this by altering the surgical technique. 96% uh, now are completely intact. Now, one of the unintended consequences of the mom's trial, which took a decade to complete, was there was a complete absence of innovation. The, we were at dead stop until we had the results of the mom's trial. And so as soon as it ended in 2011 with the publication, innovation then came back into it. And perhaps the most important was trying to do this in a less invasive way using fetoscopic surgery. And these are some, but not all of the publications. And there were a lot of mistakes made along the way. This was a very steep learning curve. And basically we've arrived at the point where yes, fetoscopic surgery is almost equivalent to open but it has to be done in the same way with a three-layered closure. 
There certainly are benefits to mom. It's still an open question if the benefits to the baby are equivalent to the gold standard, which is open fetal surgery. Now, I want to take a moment to focus on where this field is heading in the future. And I don't mean the distant future. I mean within the next one to five years. And I think what we're going to see is novel approaches and new techniques, um, both cellular and enzymatic in utero treatments, fetal gene therapy and placental gene therapy. And I look around at my colleagues and some of the advances that are coming. Uh, David Hirsch here at Children's uh, is working uh, with Dr. Sickman and Dr. Wagner and I in developing a robotic approach to fetal myelomeningocele repair, which can be done in a single 1.5-centimeter uh, port, uh, which allows the moms to deliver vaginally and improves the precision with which the repair can be done. Um, if we look around the country, um, Alan Flake at CHOP has developed what he refers to as extend or extra uterine environment for neonatal development, and I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with this. Um, this is a uh, fetal lamb that spent four weeks in a bio bag with ECMO cannulation of the umbilical vessels with a pumpless ECMO circuit. Um, and I spoke with Alan just last week. They think they're about a year away from the first in human trial uh, for severe growth restricted fetuses at uh, 24 to 25 weeks gestation. There are a few more answers that the FDA wants before they, they'll give them the green light. But this definitely has the potential for really uh, changing periviability in the way it is managed in NICUs uh, today. And then if you look uh, further west, Tippy McKenzie, who's at UCSF, has a phase one clinical trial for in utero stem cell transplantation for alpha thalassemia and already has treated three patients. And in utero enzyme replacement for lysosomal storage disease, which is underway. And Diana Farmer and Shin Hiroshi, who are uh, fetal surgeons at UC Davis, are using placental-derived stem cell-loaded matrices with the repair of myelomeningocele. And certainly in a bulldog model of myelomeningocele, uh, this kind of repair, uh, these babies, uh, these dogs, are actually not just repaired, but they are intact when they're born um, and have uh, normal near-normal ambulation. Um, as there's also work that we're doing here uh, on severe growth restriction. These are identical twins, believe it or not. You can see how profoundly growth restricted this baby is. But we've been able to correct this with gene transfer of IGF-1 in the placenta, not to the baby. And we've done this now in mouse, rat, and rabbit models. And it not only corrects the growth, but it also prevents obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease in adults. We're transitioning this to AAV and have a collaboration with Guo Pengao, who's the head of the Hore Gene Therapy Center at UMass. So i just like to conclude to say that there is reason to think that this is an extension of pediatrics. And so prenatal pediatrics is an appropriate uh, name for it. It is an absolute partnership between obstetrical and pediatric subspecialists. And as you've I know, appreciate there are growing indications for this form of intervention um, and developing novel treatments uh, for treatment in utero. 
Thank you, uh, Dr. Kamal. That was uh, absolutely spectacular, uh, really, truly innovative. Um, Dr. Fink is going to run the Q&A session. All right, first question from Dr. Zelneritis. Do you consider fetal surgery standard of care or an emerging technology? Do you address informed consent differently? Both. Um, there are aspects of fetal surgery that are clearly standard of care, and I would point to myelomeningocele and FETO, which now have type 1 data uh, supporting that intervention. That having been said, the consent process for all of these conditions is exacting because not everybody has to have fetal surgery. It's an option, and it's always presented just as an option. When we present a mom who has a baby with spina bifida, they are presented an equal picture. Postnatal repair, prenatal repair, both have different pros and cons. Prenatally has all the maternal risks associated with fetal surgery and a better outcome in terms of EP shunt and perhaps other secondary features of spina bifida versus postnatal repair, which is unquestionably the safest approach for mom but may have uh, an increased risk of the need for ventricular peritoneal shunting and all of the complications that can go with that. There are areas of this that are clearly therapeutic innovations um, and have not been uh, fully vetted yet and are presented to parents in that way. And I look at fetal renal failure and interventions for fetal renal failure, including the amnioport, in that category. Um, so it's a mixed picture, and that reflects the evolution of this field, which is constantly evolving as we learn more, as we gather greater data, refine our selection, and improve our techniques. Uh, the next question, actually, I think is a great one. Thinking along the lines of maternal equity, are underinsured and uninsured patients able to benefit from these advances in technology? What is the average length of time to obtain approvals from insurance companies? So that's a great question, and I'm very proud of the fact that everywhere I've been, whether it was in Cincinnati, Colorado, or now here in Connecticut, we have never turned away a patient because of insurance issues. And surprisingly, many of the conditions which I've talked about today are covered by insurance, um, but sometimes they're not, or the families do not have insurance coverage. Uh, we've never turned anyone away, and we continue uh, to take that stance because this isn't something that you can go down the street to the next hospital and obtain this service. So it would be unethical to take any other approach. Excellent. The next question is from Dr. Hirsch. Tim, thanks for a great talk. What's been your personal experience with regard to the trajectory of fetal surgery in the United States? The number of centers offering fetal surgery seems to have increased dramatically over the years. Do you see this trend continuing in the future, or do you think it will continue to be limited to certain regional centers of excellence? What about internationally? Do you ever see fetal surgery becoming feasible in the developing world? Well, that's a great question. Uh, thank you for that, Dr. Hirsch. Um, when I got into this, there was one fetal surgery center at UCSF. There are now over 40 in the United States. Now, the vast majority of those do not offer the full spectrum of treatment options that we'll be offering here at Connecticut Children's. In that class is probably five or six. In addition, I think that while there is an increase in these centers, most of it is oriented towards prenatal diagnosis. And what becomes even more important 
given the number of options available to patients, is the transparency about outcomes. Um, and I think that eventually there will be a sorting according to that. Um, I don't think the United States has a great track record when it comes to regionalization of care. <coughs> and I think that is true uh, with fetal surgery. I think there are certain centers that should be doing this kind of work. Not all of the centers should be doing it. With regard to international experience, I think you'd be quite surprised at how many centers there are around the world, South America, Latin America, <coughs> China, Asia, Singapore, uh, Japan. Uh, there are centers in Poland and in, thank you, um, and throughout Europe. So it is spread rather dramatically. And I think that's been driven by the the progress that had been made and the improvement in outcomes. Now, having said that, I think we have a problem here in the United States because if you look at who accesses fetal surgery, um, there are issues uh, with uh, discrepancies in race and socioeconomic status. Uh, and that has to be a focus of ours to try to correct that. Thank you, Dr. Krummelholm. Last question from Dr. Z. Along the same lines, do the conditions that are needed for spina bifida surgery in the population opting for spina bifida fetal surgery make the outcomes not as generalizable across the socioeconomic spectrum? Well, I think that's a great uh, question because when it comes to spina bifida, <coughs> it is most common in lower socioeconomic uh, segments of society. Um, and if you look along the Appalachian mountain chain, there's a big spike in the uh, incidence of spina bifida there. And I, I can tell you that a large percent of the patients we treated at uh, Cincinnati Children were from this area. Um, and their outcomes were every bit as good as someone who came from Shaker Heights. So I don't think it, it uh, impacts their outcomes but I do think there may be barriers to them getting to this kind of intervention. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for a fantastic presentation, Dr. Krummelholm. Um, I do want to close by wishing everybody a happy Valentine's Day again and join us for next week's Global Health Grand Rounds Lecture with Dr. McCall. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.